Welcome to Tombaugh Bible Church. My name is Skeet. I'm the senior pastor here. It's my pleasure uh, to open the scriptures with you this morning. We began last week a series called Upstream. And the goal of this teaching is not only to inform us of biblical truth about some of the areas in which our culture is confused, but also to equip us as Christians to be able to navigate what has become a pretty turbulent culture. And so we jumped into this last week really discussing the issue of truth, that there is such a thing as objective truth and that it's ultimately rooted in who God is and what God has said. And that the word of God is reliable and is the source from which we move really in discussing every issue from there. We don't define our own truth. Truth is what it is and it begins with God's word. This week we jump into what is a very controversial topic. Uh, We will handle it tactfully, but honestly, and it revolves around the issue of life and the sanctity of human life. Because of that, we're going to talk a good bit about abortion, which is probably the most obvious threat to the protection of human life in American culture. And we hope to do that in a way uh, that is gracious and in a way that is biblical and in a way that is historical. And I want to really begin with this is I'm not really excited about preaching this sermon. And the reason for that is not so much that the Bible is unclear on this issue. The Bible is incredibly clear. This is a complicated issue, not because the ethics and the biblical testimony is complex. It's quite simple. It's a complicated issue pastorally. The reason talking about abortion is a complicated issue pastorally is because it's estimated that roughly 25% of women in America have or will have an abortion. And what that means practically then is there are women in our gathering today who have had abortions and there are men in our gathering today who have had children aborted. Some of them may have not known, others may have encouraged it. And so for a number of people in our church family, this isn't a theoretical topic that we talk about in political conversations. This is personal because it's a part of their history. And so I want to begin with this is to show my hand. The Bible is plain. Abortion is the ending of human life. The scriptures call that murder and it's a sin. But but I want to say this is if for you, this isn't a theoretical conversation. If for you, this is a part of your history. I want you to understand that in Jesus Christ, everything can be forgiven. That the blood of Jesus was sufficient to cover all of my sin, which is a lot, and it's sufficient to cover all of your sin. That murder and abortion and any other number of things is no match for the blood of Jesus. And that not only do we have forgiveness, we have healing and restoration because of what Christ has done. So if you're here today, and that's a part of your history, I want you to understand this sermon isn't about judgment. It's about simply proclaiming what's true. And in the midst of that, recognizing that our God is a God of grace and a God of healing. The scriptures Paul talks about in Philippians, forgetting what was behind and pressing on towards what lies ahead. And I think ultimately that comes down to laying down our guilt and shame. What the old hymn says, that he breaks the power of canceled sin and he sets the captives free. That we will proclaim that this morning before we start. The scriptures are plain that abortion is a sin 
It's a violent act against another human being. But it is nothing too great for the blood of Jesus. Not only to forgive, but to restore you and to heal you. And that is available to you today if you will trust him. God is a God of grace and redemption. Now, as we jump into this issue, I I want us to begin to look at the abortion movement in America historically. You you see, we didn't invent abortion. In fact, you find in the early world, particularly in the Roman world, abortion was a reality there as well. Now, the forms were different because medical technology was different. It was generally administered through some kind of an herbal tea that would kill the child at an early age. And abortion was common kind of in two segments of the population in the ancient Roman world. First were the poorest of the poor, who might be married, but couldn't afford to feed the children they already had. And so they would make this decision. In addition to that, amongst the wealthy and high society, where marital unfaithfulness was common, Abortion became commonplace as well. You might see this in the home of a wealthy family where the husband was away at war, the wife was unfaithful because that was kind of the norm of the day, and then she found herself pregnant. And so the only solution in her mind was to abort the baby. And so it was kind of at the top and the end of the economic spectrum there in the Roman world, but it was largely outlawed throughout the Western Hemisphere as we entered into the modern era. And as it began to push forward, it moved forward first in the United States, spearheaded most publicly and notably by a woman named Margaret Sanger. Sanger was the founder of an organization called Planned Parenthood, which is the largest abortion provider in America by far. Sanger was a believer in the philosophy called eugenics, which was essentially this, that the human race, if we had selective breeding and procreation, would be stronger so that we should take proactive measures to be unfit, whereas Sanger wasn't quite as aggressive and didn't set out to create concentration camps. Rather, she sought to control the population through reproduction. Anyone that wasn't fit. And so I want to share a few of Margaret Sanger's words with you, and I want to kind of preface it with this. You can go on Facebook or the internet, and you can find a number of quotes that are attributed to Sanger that truthfully are not that can't be tracked down, that that there's no evidence that she ever said them. And it's important that we not propagate lies even if they communicate the message we want to communicate. We talked last week about how as a people of Christ who is full of both grace and truth, we have to be committed to the truth. So we don't get to share things and pass them off as true when they're not. That said... There's plenty of damning words in her own language that we can attribute to her. And so I've just shared a few with you. And I selected these out because, one, I could find PDFs of the originals online. And so I can guarantee that these are her words as she intended to communicate her perspective on the Planned Parenthood founding and the abortion movement. She began with this in the 1932 New York Times article. She said, birth control is not contraception indiscriminately and thoughtlessly practiced. It means the release and cultivation of the better racial elements in our society and a gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extirpation of defective stock. 
those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. I want to be clear what she just said. That we needed to take proactive measures by controlling who was able to have children so that races of people that she deemed less valuable were not able to have children. So these human weeds, she said, would not harm our society. I want to read another quote from her for you. In her book, which is kind of her magnum opus, if you will, pivot of civilization, she says, organized charity is itself the symptom of a malignant social disease. Instead of decreasing and aiming to eliminate the stock of people that are most detrimental to the future of the race and the world, it tends to render them to a menacing degree dominant. Following in her footsteps, current Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said this, Frankly, I thought that at the time Roe was decided there was a concern about population growth and particularly the growth in populations that we don't want to have too many of. My question to the Supreme Court Justice is which groups of people are those? When you dig into the history of the movement, you'll find a few other interesting facts about Miss Sanger and the founding of Planned Parenthood, namely that she met numerous times at KKK meetings and was funded by white supremacist groups as she got her movement off the ground. One of the key projects was something known as the Negro Project, which was intended to target poor African-American communities in the South and to convince their ministerial and pastoral leaders that controlling their population was in their best interest because in her own words, we don't want the word to get out that we desire to eradicate the black community. And so the reason I put this on the table is I want you to understand that the, the beginning of the movement and the strategic goals of Planned Parenthood did not begin with language of free choice and women's rights. That was a marketing change when no one was buying the language of racial control. You will find it interesting today to note that over two-thirds of Planned Parenthood clinics are in African-American communities. Let me put that in perspective for you. African-American population in the United States is 18% of the population. Two-thirds of the abortion clinics in America target that 18% of the population. And the practical effects of that are this. If you are an unborn African-American child in Chicago, New York, Baltimore, large urban centers such as that, you are more likely to be aborted than born. This movement is not about women having rights over their body. This movement from the beginning was a racist movement designed to control and limit the number of ethnic minorities in America, our brothers and sisters in Christ called human weeds. And and if there's anything in you that understands the way that God designed us to work together as a community of people, then something begins to kind of stir in you. In addition to those statistics, the Radiance Foundation, which is a black pro-life movement, has documented the following statistics for you. Abortion is the largest cause of death in the African-American community at 363,705 deaths. Second place is heart disease at just under 70,000. In the African-American community in America, if you take the five other leading causes of death, 
which are HIV, homicide, accidental death, diabetes, cancer, and heart disease, you combine all of them, you don't touch the number that abortion does. The plan is diabolical and racist and is still in effect and obviously at work. Now, the issue of abortion is not a new issue. It's been around for years, but the American abortion movement has a racist history and undertone, and it is unfair and dishonest for us to talk about the issue and not lay that on the table. And I say that knowing that that that's not the motivation of the unwed single mom who doesn't know what to do, but it is the motivation that led to the founding and operating principles of these organizations. And they won't say it on purpose, but Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg not too long ago voiced it for us. And if you find yourself with this kind of emotional response to that, I want you to know that, that you're really in line with the historical movement of the church. Since the beginning, the Christian church has stood in opposition to these things. Morna Hooker, who is a professor of theology of New Testament at Oxford University, in her book, Holiness and Mission, says that there were two fundamental differences about the Christian faith from everyone else in the Roman world. She said the first was that they refused to take life, meaning they were opposed to abortion. And she also notes the exposure of unwanted infants. So when abortion was impossible, people would just abandon a child on the streets. This is how the Christian church began to get involved early on in adoptive care and orphanages. Children were left on the streets and the people of God said, we have to care for this child. In addition to that, she said the second obvious ethical difference between the Christian church and the rest of the world was a strict and committed sexual ethic. So, as the Christian church, when we find ourselves surrounded by a culture that has a different view on human sexuality and a different view on the value of human life, we should not be surprised. It is our legacy. And it's from the beginning what we've understood God to be saying about how we practically interact with other human beings. So while this isn't a new issue, we do have to go back to the Scriptures and address it. The Scriptures say plainly that ending another human life is murder and is a sin. It's one of the, six, one of the Ten Commandments. It's number six on the list. But the Bible goes beyond simply telling us don't kill one another. The Bible gives us insight as to why it is God has established these commands. And I want us to begin with this in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the scriptures tell the story of God creating humanity. And it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God lays out this overarching mission for humanity, which is this. God creates man and woman, and he puts his image on them. They bear his image. They represent him to the created world. And he has told them to go and to fill the created world and subdue it, to exercise dominion over that. That humanity, designed by God as his representatives, was to actively care for and manage creation in a way that reflected God's nature and character. 
so that everywhere that people filled the earth and managed it, the glory of God would be seen because his image bearers would be present. If you turn to chapter 9, God gives Noah some commands as he and his family leave the ark. And in chapter 9, verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And God does something important here. He tells Noah that you're not to kill another human being. And that if someone does, that the appropriate punishment is to take their life. Now, this seems a a little contradictory at first. The command has just been said, don't take life. But if someone does take life, you're to take theirs. And what God is establishing is a protective law for human society. That if someone devalues human life and is willing to take it and commit murder, then an appropriate response to protect the community is for that person's life to end. In fact, God shows the value of human life by establishing such a severe penalty for taking it. More than that, we find the motive behind God's command. He says you're to not take human life because they bear my image. You see, the image of God has been placed on every man, woman, and child, regardless of their age, gender, or capacity. They bear the image of God, and because of that, every human life is valuable and has inherent dignity and worth. It's important we understand the concept of inherent dignity and worth. Is that we don't value human life based upon contributions to society. We say every human is valuable. Regardless of their ability to do anything, to communicate anything, we believe, based upon Scripture, that every life is valuable. You see, this is a point of contradiction with the world around us and those who would support abortion. Because in that mindset, not all lives are valuable, at least not equally. People with disabilities, they would say are less valuable. People who might have some kind of genetic flaw that would lead to to some issue later on, less valuable. People who are inconvenient are less valuable. Those who are poor are less valuable because they give us less. And it's this perspective that humanity has dignity based upon production. Not because it's been given it by the God who created him. And so you you get these weird things in understanding when life is worthy of being protected when you begin to go down this path. And so Roe v. Wade, which was the Supreme Court case that allowed for abortion in America, a, a little history on that case, it did not rule that abortion was a right. What it ruled is that you had the right to privacy and that the state did not have a compelling interest to invade your relationship with your doctor in this case. But it did establish some parameters. And what it established was that abortion which should be acceptable legally until what was called viability. And viability was the concept that the child would be able reasonably to survive outside of the mother's womb. So for a long time, viability was the operating legal principle as to whether or not a child should be protected. But as someone brought up to me during the break, unless the mother wanted to have the child, And then if something were to happen to the mother and the child be lost, we would file a a, a criminal complaint based upon the loss of the child. Now, 
the inconsistency aside, what you'll find here is that the numbers of when the baby should be protected by law started to shift because we started to have medical breakthroughs. Because viability now is much earlier than it was in 1973. So today, children who are born substantially premature, they have a much greater chance to survive and to live and have healthy, fruitful lives. And so that number of what is viability has begun to move down. And so we shifted to a new language. People begin to say when they're capable of feeling pain, then they should be protected. And here's the problem with that. Is that if we reverse it and there's someone who has been born and they have a genetic problem, their pain receptors do not work. If they they don't feel pain. Why, why, would it be, why would it be wrong to murder them? If that's the standard here. What we find is you begin to dig through this muddled mess of the reasoning to support abortion is that the reasoning doesn't matter. In Romans 1, we talked about this last week. When we want to do something that we know is wrong, we have this tendency to suppress the truth and build our own truth so that we can sleep well at night and still do what we want to do. But it's not okay. There's a scientific answer to the question, when does life begin? And even when you talk to scientists, you'll get convoluted answers. If you were asking an evolutionary biologist when life began, in a general sense, they're not going to give you an answer to the question about when a child is alive. What they're going to talk about is when life began on planet Earth. And through their scientific grid of how they tell the story, they're going to talk about one-cell organisms and amoebas. And they're going to call that one-cell organism a living being. The first life on earth. And if that is life, then at the moment of contraception, the baby is living. It is a living thing. And if you were able to study this living embryo, you would find that it has DNA that is distinctly human. And you would know without a shadow of a doubt that this little thing, maybe four, six, eight cells, is alive and is human. See, but the answer to the question is ultimately not about science or taxonomy. It's about philosophy. When does a person become a person? When does a person become worthy of the dignity that God has given it? That is not a scientific question. So I want you to see from a biblical perspective the way God looks at the unborn. So I want us to run through a few scriptures with one another today. As you open your Bibles, I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. As you're turning there, I want you to understand the fundamental distinction between the biblical view of life and the view that our world places on it is that the Christian and biblical view of life is that every human is valuable regardless of what they can contribute. Every person has worth and dignity. And it is greater than the sum of their achievements. That every human inherently, regardless of any other ability, has value. Because they bear the image of God. In Jeremiah chapter 1 Verse 5, God speaks to the prophet. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
And before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you a prophet to the nations. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 2. The scriptures say, thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. If you go to Psalm 139. Beginning in verse 13, it says, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me. When as yet there was none of them. And my favorite story from the New Testament Showing you the way God thinks about the unborn is found in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, Mary, the mother of Jesus, has found out that she's carrying him. A young, unwed teenage mom. And she goes to stay with her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant as well. With John the Baptist, who will be a prophet to prepare the way for Jesus. And I want you to hear their interaction when Mary shows up in verse 39. It says, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth had heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed in a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. I want to put all of this together for you. Is the Bible is clear that when God looks upon the unborn, he doesn't see something less than human. He sees a baby. And he doesn't just see the baby. He's forming and shaping them. Intricately weaving this child together. That God's hand is active in a special way as this child is being formed in its mother's womb. And more than just God being active and involved in the shaping of this child, God has established a plan of how he's going to use them and how they're going to fit into his plan for creation. And God has done all of that for this child before any of its days have come. So that when God looks upon an unborn child, God doesn't see tissue. He sees a baby. And this is another place that you can see how we just kind of twist and hide the truth from ourselves. We we call a baby tissue. So that Planned Parenthood can strip it down for parts and sell it like a used car. And we call the sale a reimbursement. I don't know about you, but a reimbursement is what happens when I incur a cost in service to someone else. And then I give them a receipt and they pay me back to compensate for the costs that I incurred in service to them. Reimbursement is not what's going on. They're selling parts of babies. 
And God looks at this unborn child. He doesn't see a potential revenue stream. He sees a child with value and worth that bears his image. And he's active shaping and weaving this child together. And he has a plan for this child from before they're born. And that's the way God sees this unborn child. And listen to me, guys. If if that's the way the Lord sees them, that's the way we should see them. Because God's word is true. So we reject the lie that this is a piece of tissue. And we embrace the truth that this is a human, a child bearing God's image. Worthy of protection, worthy of love and affection, and worthy of a chance to build a life and to pursue God's calling. So I got to be honest, I don't see any gray area for the church here. God has called us to be pro-life, but I want to talk about what that means because I think we miss it. Being pro-life is bigger and deeper than voting for people who tell you they're pro-life. See, because abortion is not just a political issue, it's a personal issue involving people going through difficult circumstances. The call to be pro-life involves a personal commitment to kind of get involved in things. And and so I want to do something. We have a, 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 I say she's a guest because she's from out of town, but Megan, would you come up? Uh, Megan Carr is with us today. Megan is the daughter of Carl and Carrie Carr. Carl is one of our teachers here on Sunday mornings and in Sunday school. Uh, Megan is a junior at Missouri State. She's 20 years old, and she just published her second book. Um, I gave her a hard time this morning about that because I figured she had said that's an average of one per 10 years. And I was thinking she could be more productive. Um, <laughs> but uh, Megan has gotten involved in the pro-life movement. And so, Megan, I just want you, could you tell kind of the congregation kind of how you're involved in the pro-life movement and what, what you guys are doing? Yes. Um, so I currently volunteer at Pregnancy Care Center in Springfield, Missouri, which is where I go to school. And I'm also heavily involved on my college campus. I'm the president of the Pro-Life Club there, and we raise awareness uh, through education. Um, so whenever that, that um, college girl is looking at that pregnancy test, she knows um, where to go. Um, So that's kind of what we do there. And I got involved because of my own personal story. I was adopted um, as a baby by my parents. And my biological mother, uh, my birth mother, she was actually, she had just turned 16 at the time. So she was relatively young. And the reason I got involved is because if she hadn't have chosen life for me, I wouldn't be standing here today. Um, So I want to be able... Um, to encourage other women facing that decision that there's hope and that to choose life because um, they wouldn't regret it. So awesome. that's kind of, yeah. And would you uh, just, a few things just practically that, that people can do just in their everyday life to help to be a part of this? Um, practically um, giving time, money, and resources to pregnancy centers um, in the area. Tomball Pregnancy Center is a, a great um, one to give to. And also, more import- importantly, too, um, is getting involved in foster care and adoption because you'll be taking care of those children. And also you'll be painting a direct picture of the gospel for those children and for their birth mothers and birth families as well. So, thank you, Megan. 
when we talk about the reality that this is a personal issue, not a theoretical issue, I'm reminded of the reality that our Lord and Savior Jesus was carried by a mom about the age that Megan's birth mother was. That if he had gone through that whole process in our world today, that many people would have pressured his mother to have an abortion. So this isn't theoretical. But but Megan kind of brings to light what's really important here. Is it's not important to say I voted the right way. I mean, that helps. But, but that's not personal. And there are ways that every one of us could, could begin to demonstrate not just that we're opposed to abortion, but that we value life. And so it's, a lot of this is just really simple. The Tom Ball Pregnancy Center is an exceptional organization. It's well run. They do great things. They provide counseling for women in crisis pregnancy. And it's not just teenage mothers. It's, it's married women that, that they're just strapped financially. They don't know how they're going to provide for another child. And so they provide counseling. They do sonograms so that women can see the baby because that's a huge, huge decision-making reality is seeing the child. They provide counseling. They provide job training for the parents so that they have an opportunity to provide. They have a, a parenting store so that as parents go through the courses, they earn credit. They can get things like diapers and formula, baby wipes. So it's a great organization. You, we've done some work to sponsor and support them. We'll continue to do that. It's a great place to donate or to volunteer. And they need all sorts of help. In addition to that, we, we support an organization that we're blessed to get to host on Monday nights called the Orphan Care Network that commits itself as, as the church to figuring out ways to ensure that we care for fatherless and orphan children. So they work a lot with adoptive parents, encouraging them and foster parents. And it's not just adoption and foster care. You may be in a stage of life where that's not really on the table for you. But you can be a support network to help those who do. To come alongside and encourage them. Things like getting CPR and first aid trained so that you can provide respite care for those foster kids and those foster parents as they're needing to just take a breath. Whether that's delivering kind of stuff that they need as a new foster child is placed in a home. Because often that happens in the middle of the night and they're going to need diapers in the morning. You can be a part of the team that does that. And I want to encourage you to contact our office about the Orphan Care Network if you want to be a part of supporting that. There is a lot going on. But we can't just kind of settle in and say, I'm pro-life. This is a significant personal issue and it demands a significant personal response. And the church, more than simply being anti-abortion, needs to be a place that values every life. In Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus describes a coming judgment, in verse 34 he begins, he says, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. From the foundation of the world, for I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me drink, and I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him. Saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you 
or naked and clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of me, these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus says that when we move out acting in love in the name of Christ to provide care for the most vulnerable in our society, it's as if we had done it directly for him. People who love Jesus should be people who love the most vulnerable in our culture. And there is no one more vulnerable than unborn children. And so I'm asking you guys to join me in prayer around this issue, really for, for a couple things. One, we, we want to pray uh, first that, that those people in our congregation and that we'll meet, that for them this isn't theoretical, this is personal, this is part of their history, that there would be healing and restoration and that the guilt would be stripped away by the power of the blood of Jesus. We also want to pray that God would move kind of in an overarching way in our culture, that the stain of abortion would be removed from America. But, but we also want to ask God to show us how we can personally become a part of the solution. See, we don't know what's going to happen in Washington. But I do know this, that in our community every day, there are children at risk of being aborted. And that you and I will come into contact with those people with an opportunity to share the love of Christ and be used by God to ensure that that baby is born. Some of you will become those children's adopted parents and raise them in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord. And that's where it gets personal. So I want us to pray together. Father God, we, Lord, we come before you with a heavy heart. Lord, this is, this is not a light or enjoyable topic, but it's a true issue. Father, I fear that we've thrown the future generations away unknowingly. I would confess that as a believer, I've looked the other way and chosen to not think about this. But Father, you don't allow us to look away any longer. Lord, I want to lift up our brothers and sisters who abortion is not just a theory but a part of their experience and I pray for them that through faith in Jesus their sins would be wiped clean just as mine have been and Lord there are many just as mine Father that not only would they be forgiven but that you would heal them of the guilt and shame that they would walk faithfully in the joy of their salvation with you Father pray Lord, that you'd move in a way in our country that would cease this. That our legal system would understand what is true and right and take the step of protecting the most vulnerable among us. And I pray that as the church, we'd lead the way in showing a value for human life. And that you would illuminate to each of us kind of where we can step in and give us an opportunity to have a chance, Lord, to lead to a child that might have been aborted being born. And not just being born, but being loved and nurtured in your word. Lord, we pray through raising up a generation that seeks you, that you would change our country, that you would change this world. Lord, we don't know what the politicians will do, but we know that you're good. And we're asking you to move and to show us how to move with you. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.